All right. Good morning, Faith Church. What's going on, everybody? Hey, welcome to the house. It's so good to see everybody here in our Florence campus. Can we show some love and welcome everybody in our Shoals campus, everybody in our Lawrenceburg campus? To all of our Faith Church family, man, it's good to have you. If you're a first-time guest, we want to say welcome, whether you are live and in person or whether you're watching online. So good to have everybody here. Come on, we said every week that we believe that Jesus, he's the hope of the world. So whoever you are and whatever you're going through, your issue, your hurt, your heartache, your habit, we believe if you'll open up your life to Jesus, it'll be the greatest decision you've ever made. How many of you already know that's true? Come on. Well, listen, last week we started a series entitled Fight Club. Everybody shout Fight Club. The conversation is that when God created us, when God created everything we see, he intended us to really thrive. In fact, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. And we see that what life looked like in the Garden of Eden, in creation, is that God gave us five things. And it's the conversation we're having is if you'll find out what these five are and if you'll fight for them. Because oftentimes we spend a lot of energy and a lot of effort fighting for things that really don't matter, arguing for content that really doesn't help us move forward or thrive in life. But if we'll fight for the five, that's where we find life. And so I would encourage you to go back and just listen to that foundational message. But today I want to talk about the first of the five. I want to talk about fighting for your faith. And the reason I want to have this conversation is because in culture, what we hear is this conversation of deconstruction. Deconstruction is this really big word. It has a lot of connotation with it that we're going to try to tackle today. But really, when it comes to people deconstructing from their faith, what we find is that people are asking questions and they're getting answers. And the answers they get are causing many to walk away and abandon the faith that they were raised with. And so we just want to talk about this and figure out what it looks like and what it means for all of us in this big conversation. But I want to go back. When I was a kid, maybe this is your story too. I very distinctly remember as a child, multiple times sitting at a dinner table after everybody else had walked away. And I had to sit there and eat until my plate was clean. Anybody remember that? Having to eat till you clean your plate. And here's what's crazy is I'll just tell you, I had incredible parents, really, really good parents that taught me and my brother so many good things. And I'm probably going to make them sound worse than they really were because every child, your perspective of what happened is probably a little twisted. But there are pictures of me in existence of sitting at a table asleep with a plate of food that I didn't finish, which in hindsight, I won because I didn't finish the food. (laughs) But here's what's funny is I remember kind of that tension of my dad telling, like, you got to clean your plate. Before you get up from this table, you have to clean your plate. Now, fast forward 20 years. I'm a fairly new dad. I have two daughters, you know, three, four years old, five, six years old. And I remember sitting at dinner tables and having the exact same conversations that my dad had with me, the exact same tension that my dad had with me. I remember my daughter saying, dad, I don't want to eat this. I'm not hungry. And I'd be like, listen, you can't get up until you clean your And I just found myself kind of pushing the same narrative and agenda. And it was tense. I'm like, no, you're not getting up until you clean your plate. Now, what I found out was that my wife really was not quite as adamant about my parenting style because in a lot of households, right, my wife is grace and I'm truth. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And you need both to operate. And my wife said, Steve, it's no big deal. They're not hungry. They had a late snack. You know, they don't really like that. And I said, no, they're going to eat it. And here's what I found out is, is I pulled back away from the tension of the moment. I started to ask myself this question. Why is it so important for them to eat their whatever? And what I found out is if I was willing to look in the mirror and be honest is that it started to become a respect issue. It really wasn't about their nutrition. It was about their submission. Because I'm not going to let a four-year-old tell me what they're not going to do. I'm the head of this household. You're going to do what I say. Come on. That's really what was kind of behind this thinly veiled idea that I was concerned about their nutrition. 
And worse, if you really look at it, I remember my dad telling me stories about how his dad made him sit at the table until he got up or until he cleaned his plate. He couldn't get up and he would sit there in the dark. And so here's what I want you to hear is the reason I was making my kids eat clean their plate is because my dad made me clean my plate because his dad made him clean his plate. And I finally decided that's probably not the best way to parent. I was handed a parenting style that really wasn't effective and I had to be willing to let it go. The best way to describe that small process that we're talking about is deconstruction. Everybody say deconstruction. What is deconstruction? It's a big conversation. It really funnels around this conversation of faith. But deconstruction is bigger than that. Let me just give you a really simple definition. This is my definition of what deconstruction is. Deconstruction is the critical process of questioning the validity of your worldview. What that means is, is you're, you're, you're all handed a worldview. The way you see the world, the way you interpret the world, the decisions you make, and I mean every arena of life, from your parenting to your politics to your relationships to your faith and on, you are all given a worldview. It's part of the process. And so deconstruction is when you look at this worldview, you look at the way you operate, and you just start to ask questions, and you start to make decisions that maybe what I believe, maybe what I was told isn't best. It's asking questions like this. Is what I believe healthy? Is it true? Is it valuable? Or asking questions like this, is what I believe, is my worldview, is it unhealthy? Is it destructive? Is maybe it outdated? And so it's just this process of looking at how you operate, how you live, how you believe, and asking questions that cause you maybe to move in a different direction than the way you were raised and brought up. Developmental psychologists talk about this process that deconstruction isn't the only phase, it's the second of three phases. Here are the three phases of deconstruction. Everybody say deconstruction. This is going to be sticky. I need you to track with me today. I'll do my best. You do your, I'll do my best to talk. You do your best to listen. Everybody shout fight club. We're going to fight for our faith today. At every campus, one more time, everybody shout fight club, fight club. Here's the process that developmental psychologists talk about, that it starts with construction. That again, what you believe really isn't yours. It's what you were handed. It's how you were raised. That our worldview and the way we live is a part of our experience and our education as children, adolescents, and young adults. Yet you parent based on how you were parented generally. That you handle your diet, your politics based on the home you were raised in, the education system you were a part of. And all of it is biased. And so we build our worldviews, we construct our worldviews and how we view God, how we view the church, how we view everything in life based on, again, what we were handed. And again, sometimes we go through these phases where something happens that causes us to question that. And it starts the second phase, the deconstruction phase. And the deconstruction phase is, again, it just starts to get really challenging. We're just not sure about that. Maybe something happens that hurts us. Maybe something happens that goes against the rules that we were raised with. Something happens that's outside of the boundaries that we thought the way it should be. And we just start to ask questions that causes us to ultimately walk away. And then it brings us to phase number three, reconstruction. Reconstruction. So we tear it down, we start to question, and we build it back up. And here's the beauty of, of reconstruction, is oftentimes what you and I believe is what we were taught to believe, what we were told to believe, but we're not sure we believe it ourselves. And so the value of going through this construction phase is once you go through it, they're no longer your parents' values, they're yours. And that's a good thing because until they're yours, you can't own them. And so we all need to go through this process where there are convictions, where there are values. And so that's this process that all of us go through. And here's what I want you to hear today. 
because it really has this negative stigma. It has this negative connotation in the society we live that deconstruction is horrible, it's bad. In fact, if you're here and maybe you have some friends who have deconstructed or you're reading articles online and maybe you've read some material, you're hearing conversations. This is happening big right now with musical uh, artists. We've seen in the last several years, people who are just huge on the Christian scene, which you may know nothing about, but if you listen to you know, Way FM or 93, uh, all these radio stations, there are musical people that are abandoning faith. They have deconstructed their faith. They've experienced something in society, something in culture, something in church that's caused them to ask questions, that's caused them to walk away. It's not just Christian musicians. Pastors, significant, well-known pastors have deconstructed their faith and walked away from the church. Possibly you have friends or family members that have gone through the same thing. So the challenge is we hear this word deconstruction and all of a sudden, and this is, this is us, church, we're guilty of this. All of a sudden, church people start to panic. We start to, we start to just put our guard up. No, man, we, just don't, we don't even want to talk about it. You'll never find that at Faith Church. We're going to have hard conversations. We're going to dig into tough topics. And deconstruction is something that's a part of our culture and we just need to talk about it. So I came today to have the conversation. Everybody shout Fight Club. So deconstruction, here's what I want you to hear out of the day is that deconstruction can be beneficial. Deconstruction can be beneficial. Let me just give you a couple of real quick examples. Again, I told you a parenting story. I was handed a parenting principle that really didn't fit and really wasn't healthy, and I deconstructed. I pulled it down, and we implemented something new. Let's be honest. Many of you in this room, your political worldview isn't yours. It's what you were handed. You think it's yours, but it's not. You've never questioned it. Every single voting time, you wander in a booth, and you check all Democrats. Well, that's what dad did. Dad, dad, was, dad was union. We vote Democrat in this house. Well, why? Well, because that's what we do. We vote Republican in this house. I would rather you have convictions of being a socialist than not being convicted of being a real Democrat. Like, at least it's yours. And so this challenge is, a lot of us, uh, it's beneficial for you to have your own convictions, for your own principles about politics. Let's have a conversation about dieting and eating. Or let's not. <laughs> didn't really seem to land. <laughs> do you know that most of you eat the way your parents fed you because it's how they ate? Some of you in this room and like your parents and whoever you think should have cooked, should have been shared, whatever. Maybe you, maybe you had a parent who never cooked and you always went out to eat. And so when it became your time to be a parent or you became an adult, you find yourself always going out to eat. There can be a process and maybe should be a process of deconstruction where you look at your budget and say, I can't afford to live like this. It's expensive to eat out every meal. You start asking questions. You deconstruct eating out and you construct, reconstruct a new budget and a new way to eat. Some of you might be a little overweight. It's because you eat fried foods and processed foods. I shouldn't say you. I should say we because I like fried foods and processed Listen, fry anything, it gets better. Can I just get an amen in the house? You know, carnivals and fairs have proved that scientifically. <laughs> Stick it in some batter and fry it, it gets better. But maybe you looked at it like you looked at the diet you were handed because that's how you were raised. All you ate was processed food and fried food and you loved it. But at some point you looked at your waistline and said, how I was raised and the diet I was given really isn't functional. It's not healthy. I need to put a paleo. I need to put a Mediterranean. I need to put an Atkins model in place, whatever it is. But when it comes to the conversation of faith, deconstruction can be beneficial especially in the arena of faith. Deconstruction is not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a principle of evaluating what you believe. And every one of you, 
owe it to yourself to evaluate for yourself what you believe. Here's what you need to hear. This is really, really important. You probably have never heard this before, but Jesus, did you know that Jesus was an advocate of people deconstructing their faith? Jesus was the originator of people saying, are you sure about that? And the reason I know that is because when you read the New Testament, Jesus stepped on the scene and he tackled and he challenged an entire worldview and religious system that was no longer operating the way God designed it to operate. Religious leaders were on an authority kick. They made religion all about this external way that you look. And as long as you look good and as long as you act okay in public, then you must be okay. And Jesus stepped on the scene and he started asking questions like this. Hey, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you, it's not just about if you don't murder anybody else. How's your heart? Do you hate anybody in your heart? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. So as long as you're not sleeping with somebody you're not married to, you're good. Jesus said, no. Have you considered your heart? Because lust starts in the heart. So Jesus came to... Uh, deconstructing faith. The religious system of the day made it very hard for people to connect with God. The religious leaders of the day had made it very difficult, especially for poor people, to have a relationship with their creator. And you find Jesus in the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry going in and upsetting the tables in the temple because he was a deconstructionist. He called people to challenge the faith of their forefathers that they were handed you owe it to yourself to do the same. Jesus wasn't the only deconstructionist. Paul, the apostle Paul, his ministry was a ministry of deconstruction because the religious people, the Jewish people of the day were handed a religious system. And Paul came saying, hey, Jesus came and established a new system. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the final sacrifice once and for all, for all people, for all sin, for all time. Come on, somebody, is anybody thankful for that? So people kept wanting to go back to all of these ways of celebrating faith that was now outdated. Paul came to cause people to deconstruct an old way of looking at life and the worldview of faith and saying, here's a new model to put into place. The book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with the Bible, the book of Hebrews is a document on deconstruction. The entire message of the book of Hebrews is the word better. You had something, but now there's something better. There's a better high priest, a better temple, a better sacrifice, and his name is Jesus. No longer we go to buildings. Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Come on, somebody. There's a better way. Everybody shout better. So maybe, just maybe, there's a better way to parent. There's a better way to handle politics. There's a better way to handle your diet. What I want to talk about today is that I think there's a better way. At least you owe it to yourself to ask the hard questions. And you owe it to yourself, not just to inherit and to walk in the faith of your fathers and your mothers, but you owe it to yourself to say, this is my faith and this is what I believe. And this is why I believe it. It's beneficial, not just Jesus, not just Paul, not just the book of Hebrews, all the reformers throughout history have been deconstructionists. Martin Luther stood in front of the church and said, you have made church and you have made religion and you've made scripture something God never intended it to be. The church at that time was telling people that you could buy forgiveness if you just gave enough money. Martin Luther stood and said, no, something's wrong with that. The church was teaching only the high spiritual leaders like pastors and priests could get into the presence of God. And Martin Luther showed up, the great reformer said, no, 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 we need to pull that down. We need to ask some hard questions because anybody who has a relationship with God through Christ has access to him. Anybody can come to Jesus. Anybody can pray. Anybody can read the scriptures. I'm thankful that Martin Luther was a deconstructionist. Now let me say something that hurts your feelings. 
So there is a, there's a modern movement. I really probably shouldn't even say it's modern. It has some, has some years on it. Um, most of you, you may not own this title, but probably I, how I would define your faith if we got into a conversation is that probably many of us sitting in this room in Lawrenceburg and Shoals, many people who are watching this message in America, we consider themselves evangelicals. Now, evangelical are standard Christians who believe the basic things, but in the 80s, evangelicalism, the Christian church was hijacked by politics. You don't have to agree with me. I get the pulpit. <laughs> and politics saw the religious as a voting block. And they came and recruited us and called us and wooed us in. And now here we are. The majority of evangelicals are Republicans. Now we've got this tension that should only operate in the political realm that's invaded the church. And here we are fighting each other over politics. And this is not the place for politics. We're going to talk about government. Let's talk about God's government. We're going to talk about a kingdom. Let's talk about God's kingdom because that's the only kingdom that really matters because it's the only one that's going to last forever. It's the only one that can save people, heal people, restore people is God's kingdom. I'm not saying you can't have a political worldview. I'm not saying you shouldn't have one. You should. But at the end of the day, there's a reason you don't see an American flag in this church, on this platform, or on this property. It's because we're not here to celebrate the United States of America. We're here to celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's a different conversation. Wait. So there's a whole movement of people who now call themselves ex-evangelicals. Ex, they're saying, I no longer, I, I grew up in a church that was evangelical. And there's lots of stuff I loved about it. But all of a sudden, I noticed this tension happening in the church, and we were fighting, and politics were being pushed down our throat. And on the platform every Sunday, I heard them talking about Trump and, you know. And a lot of this generation have walked away from faith because their faith was too connected to politics. And so you owe it to yourself to deconstruct your faith and to ask hard questions, to get solid answers. So when you get to a worldview... It's not one that was handed to you. It's not one that was just preached to you. It's yours. You own it. You looked at it. You studied it. You considered it. And it's yours. However, while it can be incredibly beneficial, what you need to know is deconstruction can also lead to deception. Let me say that again. Deconstruction can also lead to deception. See, what's happened typically in deconstruction, all the deconstruction I'm in favor for, Jesus, Paul, Hebrews, on and on and on, is generally what we do is we look at the worldview we've been handed, this, the healthy way to deconstruct, is to consider what you've been handed in light of scripture. What's happening currently is people are no longer evaluating what they've been handed in their worldview in light of scripture. Many people who are walking away from their faith are deconstructing because, because they're comparing what they've been handed to, not by scripture, but by culture. And what we're doing is we're looking, for, we're looking to culture to give us cues in how we should look at morality, how we should judge certain subjects, how we should consider things that are happening on the world platform. And we're taking our cues from culture. And when we find that our preachers, our pastors, and our Bible doesn't preach what the world's preaching, instead of rejecting the world, we're rejecting the church, we're rejecting pastors, rejecting the, uh, the Bible, and ultimately rejecting God. We have it backward. Our standard, you need to hear today, our standard is what does God say about that subject? So we got to come back to if you deconstruct, which you should, if you're looking for answers, which you should, we find ourselves, I think, coming back to what does God's word teach? What does God's word teach? And we start to ask that question. When you ask any question, listen to this. When you ask questions, you'll get answers. 
And that's what deconstruction is. Deconstruction is asking questions. And when you ask enough questions, you'll start getting answers, but you have to be careful that the new answers you get are more valid or more true than the answers you got before. Come on, somebody. If all you do is get more information that's just as wrong, then you're just as bad off as you were before. So it's okay to deconstruct, but you have to get information and you have to get a worldview that has better handles and better information than maybe what you grew up with. Go all the way back in the original deconstruction. It's not new. Did you know the original deconstruction happened all the way back in the book of Genesis? Adam and Eve were handed a worldview. They were created by a creator. They found out that their creator was good because he provided the five. Everybody shout the five. He provided them people. He provided principles, provided a purpose, provided provision. He provided everything they needed. And man, it was perfect. In fact, the Bible says what God created was very good. And then Satan slipped in and asked this question. Did God really say, hey, I I know you were handed a worldview, you were handed a faith, but are you sure you're right? And so there's nothing wrong with questions, but I'm just telling you, when you get questions, you're gonna get answers. And if you get your answers from the enemy, your faith is gonna fall apart. You're gonna deconstruct in a really unhealthy direction. Did God really say? And we find in culture, did God, did God really say? Did God really say, or is it just the church? Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And probably many of you are wrestling with your faith who's hearing this because someone posed a question to you or someone made a statement to you to cause you to question what you believe and you find yourself in this season of, of deconstruction. And I just want you to know this. Don't feel like you have to deconstruct alone. The last place you wanna be when you have questions is alone. As your pastor, I would do the best I can to help any person in this room. Truly, if you ever send me a message, I don't answer right away. This is, I'm not, I get hundreds of questions from people. Pastor, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And I'll just tell you this, Google first, ask me second. <laughs> Google first, and I'm not saying Google's the best way to go, but like I have other things to do than just sit and just, someone's just, I, I get this, people are like, why is the sky blue? I think I'm going to ask Pastor Steve. And it's like, just because you had a random question, now I feel obligated because I read it. You could see I read it because it gives you a red receipt that now I got to answer it. <laughs> but if you got a question, call me. We have pastors here who would love to walk with you in your journey. And I'm just going to tell you, we don't have, have all the answers either. But if you have questions, make sure you're going to the best source possible to get the best answers possible to help you from deconstruction to reconstruction where your convictions and your worldview is yours and you can hang on to it and weather whatever storm comes your way. Come on, can anybody give God praise for that? So the the challenge is, a lot of us, we have seen this, as people start to deconstruct, what we find is, is that in culture, there's this domino effect that something happens and it causes people to start walking away from the church. And we've seen it happen and it's happening all over. There's lots of studies and lots of numbers. There's lots of sociological experiments where people are looking at the church and people are abandoning the church because something happened that hurt them. And so they walked away from the church. And not only are they walking away from the church, once they walk away from the church, they're saying, hey, what about the Bible? And they start asking questions about the Bible and because they don't get solid answers, people are walking away from the Bible. And so people go from walking away from church, the next domino to fall typically is, is the Bible. And finally, ultimately, people walk away from the relationship with God altogether. And if you are in that process, I want to be the stopgap to keep that next domino from falling. I want you to construct a rock solid faith in a God who loves you, a savior who died for you in a relationship with him that you can have forever. And so 
Here's the challenge. Why is deconstruction happening? This is important. Deconstruction, I believe, is happening for two reasons. It's a bigger conversation. But I think there's two things that are really driving deconstruction, and this is it. Deconstruction is often driven by two things, by church hurt and a low biblical IQ. By church hurt and a low biblical IQ. And let me tell you something. If you go to church long enough, somebody will hurt you. See, the mindset is if it's a church, everybody in church is a Christian and everybody knows Christians love God and love people. And so therefore, if I go to church, everybody's going to love me and they're going to compliment me and celebrate me and nobody's going to gossip about me. And every time I go to church, it's going to be like, woo! And you come along enough, somebody's going to gossip about you. Somebody's going to hurt your feelings. You're not going to get invited somewhere. It is inevitable. Do you know why? Because while we are a building full of people who are called to love Jesus and others, we are also a building full of imperfect people. And you put several thousand imperfect people in a room, we're going to hurt each other. You're going to gossip about me. I might not say hi to you. It's just inevitably going to happen. But the problem is when the worldview you were handed tells you that the church is full of perfect people who should always love as perfect as Jesus did, and then what you experience is different than what you were taught, you start deconstructing and saying, well, the Bible says we should love people and they don't love people. And if they don't love people, they're not really the church. I don't need that building and I don't need that place and I don't need those people. And people are abandoning church, not because church is wrong. It's because the worldview you were handed. And what you were told about what you should expect from church was never valid and true. And so it's church hurt. Some of you in this room are watching online and a pastor has hurt you. They are notorious. We, because I'm a pastor, are notorious of big churches. And this is a big church. I have to fight pride and arrogance and ego because pastors, especially pastors of large churches, have a very serious problem with their ego and abusing authority. And a lot of church people have suffered because of it. I'm just telling you it happens. And so because that happens, because these challenges we face, because you've been hurt by church people and pastors, you're abandoning, you're deconstructing. And I'm just telling you, you just have to be careful because in the process of your deconstruction, while it can be beneficial, you run the risk of being deceived because in the process, the enemy does not want you to know God, does not want you to serve God, does not want you to experience the grace of God. And he will lie to you and whisper to you and bring all the information ever he can get in front of you to cause you to deconstruct your faith to a place of destruction. Your deconstruction should never lead to destruction. And if it's leading to destruction, you have gone the wrong path. And God wants you to come back and find handles and a relationship with him, again, that'll weather any storm. It's not just church hurt. I heard a story, uh, Philip Yancey, some of you may who've been in church for a while. Philip Yancey is a very prolific uh, author. He has an incredible journey. I'd encourage you to maybe tune in. There's some, you can find some of the stuff on YouTube. He tells a story. He was raised in a very religious home, raised in a very religious church, was handed a faith worldview. But he started to experience some conflict. He found out, for example, his mother, who claimed to love the Lord, was raised in church her whole life, worshiped like nobody else on Sunday and beat him like nobody else on Monday, physically beat him and his brother. And he started questioning, how could a woman who says she loves God have this kind of anger issues and abuse issues? And it caused, her, caused him to begin to question. His real deconstruction happened because throughout his time, he was raised in a very small church that had a very, um, uh, very small way of viewing some things in scripture. 
Ultimately, there's a scripture you can find in the book of Genesis that a handful of people have abused to try to teach the church at large and the world at large that there's something wrong with black people, that specifically, if you are a person of colors because God cursed you and you're cursed and you're never gonna succeed. And Philip Yancey was raised in one of these churches. It's the same point of view that was used by Nazis. It's the same point of view that some people use to, alloc- uh, to okay uh, slavery, and it's not okay. Just so we're clear on this platform, whether you are red, red yellow, black, and white, we are precious in his sight. We are all one, male, female, white, black, red, we are equal in Jesus. But listen, Philip Yancey was, and if you're handed it and you never question it, you think it's true. And Philip Yancey, his entire faith journey as a kid and an adolescent was taught that black people are cursed, that they'll never succeed. He said he finally went to college, his very first college, he met the university president and it was a black gentleman. He said, standing in front of this elite uh, university president, he said, my entire faith began to deconstruct in that moment. Everything I was taught and everything I believed was wrong because if they were right, how is this man a university president? He said he went on and started asking questions. And the more questions he asked, the less he liked the answers. And for a season, he walked away from his faith. And I want you to know something. The problem is, if you're being taught or challenged something, you just have to ask yourself, is a person who's teaching, is it true? You owe it to yourself to get the right answers. It's not just church hurt. It's a low biblical IQ. Nobody's going to like this. But again, there's lots of studies that a lot of us, we don't really know what we believe. There's lots of studies done that the average church person cannot articulate the basics and the simplicity of the gospel. And we sure as heck can't defend it. And so when you think you have a faith and you sit in a college university class, and just to let you know, this happens on a regular basis. Men and women who've been raised their entire life in church sit their first semester as a freshman in a philosophy class or an ethics class And some professor who's decided themselves to walk away from faith or never engage in faith, sit in front of these students and ask one question. And for many of them, it dismantles their faith in one question and they walk away from the faith. And I would say to those people, the faith you walked away from, you walked away from because you never had handles on it. If you had handles on it, it can't be stripped that easily. You owe it to yourself to have a strong, to know what it is that you believe, to hang on to what it is that God wants you to hang on to. In... uh, A study I found says that Gen Z, Gen Z consumes 3,000 hours a year, 3,000 hours a year of digital content. Out of that digital content, only 150 hours of it is Christian at all. And I just want you to know, you become what you contemplate. You become what you contemplate. So if you're always looking at everybody else questioning faith and tearing down your faith and being disparaging toward the church, and I'm just telling you, you're going to go that direction. So you owe it to yourself to educate yourself. As your pastor, I will do the best I can every single week to stand on this platform prepared, biblically prepared, to give you information and low-hanging fruit that you can walk away and get handles on your faith. But at the end of the day, you're in this room an hour a week, you owe it to yourself to be a person of prayer, to be a person of scripture, and know what it is that you believe. Come on, somebody. Invest the time in the most precious resource you have, and that's your faith. So if we toughen up a little bit, and be, have real expectation about what church is about. It's about a room full of imperfect people trying to serve a perfect God. I'm under no delusion. Some of you have hurt my feelings. I can name you. <laughs> I keep a list. <laughs> I'm sure if I was to ask you, I'm sure I've hurt some of you too. We need to get realistic expectations. That's the problem when faith deconstructs is because the worldview we handed was just, it was never realistic in the first place. 
We need to get beyond church hurt and we need to develop our faith and have a strong, high biblical IQ. And we far less likely to have the faith that we were given and the faith that we're developing personally robbed from us. I wanna give you four things. How do we develop? How do we grow? How do we, how do we move forward in a healthy deconstruction? I'm gonna give you four things really, really quick. Let me read this though. Jude chapter, uh, verse, verse three. It's only one chapter. So we say verse three. I want everybody to read this together, just this verse, every voice. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith. Doing what? Urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time for his holy people. Jude is writing and he's writing this letter and he says, man, I, I would love to write a letter and I would love for us to sell about this incredible sell, uh, salvation we've been given. But I found that there's a lot of people struggling in their faith. So struggling with faith is nothing new. It was happening 2000 years ago. And so Jude says, here's how we're gonna tackle this issue of some of us struggling with our faith. He says, we're gonna fight for the faith. Everybody say that, we're gonna fight for the faith. The way some translations say it is contend for the faith. This thing you've been given is worth fighting for. You have to fight for your faith or someone's gonna take it for you. You have to fight for your values or someone's gonna strip them for it. Either it's, a, either it's gonna be a politician or a college professor, or a book you read or a TikTok you watch. It is worth fighting for your faith. You have to put in the effort if you wanna walk in it. Fight for your faith. I want you to notice he doesn't just say fight for a faith. He says fight for the faith. He uses a definite article, and his point is, while there's lots of worldviews, and while there's lots of religious opinions, there's only one faith. There's only one creator. There's only one God. There's only one savior. There's only one baptism. Come on, there's only one person who showed up to rescue humanity. His name was Jesus, sent by his father on a rescue mission to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death. There's only one faith. See, and that's where it starts, because some people are saying, everybody's telling you, no, every faith is equal. Well, you have to decide. I don't believe every faith is equal because nobody else showed up to die for me except Jesus. Nobody can save me except Jesus. So there is an exclusivity claim in the gospel. And if that causes you tension, you owe it to yourself to wrestle with it. You owe it to yourself to ask hard questions. But come to the conclusion when you're done of why is the gospel exclusive and why is it worth your life? I've decided it's worth mine because Jesus believed that I was worth his. Four things, four things. If you're moving through deconstruction, if you're not moving through deconstruction, these are four questions I think will help all of us. Number one, ask questions. Ask questions. Again, the way deconstruction typically happens is people get confronted with situations and they start to ask questions. I think you should get ahead of the game and ask questions anyways. We have questions like, let's just get them out. Asking questions doesn't mean you don't have faith. Asking questions and voicing even doubt doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. See, we are raised in this environment where if you doubt, boy, you don't love God. If you doubt something's wrong with your relationship, God's gonna be mad at you. I just want you to know, I've been serving God for 30 years. I'm educated in what I do. I've gone to Bible college, have a master's, on my way in a PhD. I still have questions. I was wrestling through a question this past week doing research on. It's okay to have questions. David had questions. If you go through the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, many of them are written by David asking questions like this. God, where are you? God, do you give a rip about me? God, how come evil keeps on thriving? How come people who abuse people seem to do better than people who love you? Like, God, what's going Like, it's okay to have questions. In fact, asking questions is what will fortify your faith, not strip you of your faith. Ask questions. 
Ask questions. If you have questions, you may not always get the answer you want in the time you want it. And so we go through this season of doubt. And it's okay to have doubt. I'd say it this way. Doubt, doubt is indicative of a person who has questions. It just means you're still asking. You're still kicking the tires. You're still searching around. You're still trying to find the answer to that. You just don't want to allow yourself as a person of faith, I believe, to move into unbelief. Doubt is not unbelief. Unbelief is indicative of a person who has answers. So doubt is saying, I'm not sure. Did God create the world in six real days or six eons? Was the flood, was it real? Was it global? Was it local? You can ask all those questions. But unbelief says, I don't believe there is a God. I don't believe that. And once you allow yourself to get there, very difficult to move back into a position of faith. Number two, be okay with complexity. The reason a lot of people are deconstructing in their faith is we're trying to take these really complex conversations and make them so simple. And there's some things you just can't make simple. Let me just give you a prime example. There is a conversation. uh, It's a philosophical statement. It's called the atheist trilemma. That's the name it's known by. And it goes like this. It's a conversation that evolves around, revolves around uh, evil in this world. And people who don't believe in God will pose the, the atheist trilemma this way. They'll say, if God... If God, who's supposed to be all powerful, right? If he can't do something with his evil, he's not all powerful. And if he can, but he refuses to do anything with this evil, then he's not all good. And if the God you claim you serve is all good and all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Well, that's a great question. And when you pose it in that simple of terms, well, if God's unwilling to do it, he must not be all good. If God's unable to do it, he must not be all powerful. And people hear that and they're like, that's a great question. And I'm just telling you, you're trying to make something really incredibly complex, like the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. You're trying to bring it down to three simple statements. You just can't get there. I'm just telling you, here's how I know God is good. Not because there's not still hurting. There is hurt in this world. There are storms and destruction in this world. Babies die in this world. People get cancer in this world. And I'll be the first person to say, God, I'm not really sure why you're doing it that way. But at the end of the day, I don't question whether God is good because I've already got the answer. 2,000 years ago, there's an old rugged cross on a hill where the good of God has been satisfied forever. He loved me enough and he loved you enough to die on that cross. And so I don't always understand what God's up to, but I know he's good. And I know he's all powerful because look what he made. So his sovereignty, I'm trusting he's going to work it out. That's for me. But again, my point is be okay with some complexity. If you try to take the complex thing of who God is in your faith and always try to whittle it down to something very, very simple, you might miss what God wants you to hold on to and trying to make it too simple. Number three, bookend your faith. I could spend a message on this, but I can't. Here's what I mean by bookend your faith. There are lots of questions, lots of questions about church and lots of questions about scripture and lots of questions about God. But as you ask these questions, you need to have, two, you need to have some foundations that you can hang on to. You need to have some handles. And I'm gonna give you two of them. These are two of them, the creation story and the resurrection story. What are they? The creation story and the resurrection story. And here's why you can and should use those two is because you don't need the Bible to validate those two. If you're struggling with the Bible, I don't know if the Bible's true. They told me this and they found this this archeological dig. The scientists are teaching this and it feels like it goes contrary to scripture. And well, the creation's in scripture. And I don't know if I trust scripture, so can I trust creation? Pull the Bible out of it. You can still have a faith foundation without the Bible. I believe in the Bible, so don't misquote me. Take the Bible out of the equation and you still have the creation story. What's the creation story? 
is everybody believes, every single scientist on the face of this earth believes that the universe is not eternal. It had a beginning. And if it had a beginning, it had a beginner. Let me say that again. Every single scientist on the face of the planet believes that this, the universe we live in, is not eternal. It had a beginning. If it had a beginning, it has a beginner. If it's here, it has a cause. Kalam's cosmological argument says it this way. Everything, everything that begins has a cause. Everything that, began to be, everything that began to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore it has a cause. The only conversation I want to have is, and some people would have this, what was the cause? Some people would say it's science. Okay, I think it takes less faith to believe that there's an all-powerful God who spoke creation into existence rather than there were laws that just existed from nowhere at some point in time and all of a sudden exploded into this universe. Wait, wait, wait. If, if you got just some laws, uh, where did they exist before there was space? When did it exist? Before there was time. What matter did it, did it push itself on and matter did not exist? But creation makes it very clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning is time. God created the heavens and the earth. There is space, earth, there is matter. So it's just a matter of conversation. So without the Bible, I can look at the fact that there is a universe and I can look at the fact that the complexity of you, not just that the universe began to exist, but life began to exist. You know what scientists can't explain? I'm not here to debate. This is not a conversation of faith and science. Those things are not in contradiction. They're, they're complementary. I'm just saying, from my point of view, creation adheres because there was a creator. It started somehow. I'm saying it was God. In life, while there's lots of conversations about how life evolved or how we got where we are, how did it begin? Because matter doesn't move from inanimation to animation on its own. Something sparks life. So the creation story. Number two, the resurrection story. I know the resurrection story is told in scripture, but you can pull the Bible out of the way. And the only explanation that there are 3 billion Christ followers on this planet, when you go all the way back to the first century, was there was a story about a man who lived, who died, and who rose again. And his resurrection story gained so much traction that people were willing to lay down their life and push a message and teach a narrative and tell a story over and over and over and over again while losing their life, while being burned alive, while being crucified upside down, while being fed to lions. They stuck to their story that we saw saw Jesus, we saw him die, we saw him buried, and we saw him alive for 40 days. Not just a handful of people, but the Bible tells us up to 500 people. And that story gains so much traction. And the foundation of our faith is not the Bible. The foundation of our faith is the story of the resurrection of Jesus, our Savior, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, and who lives forever. And because he lives, we get to live also. Come on. That's the, those are the things. And number four, Number four, focus on the fundamentals. Lots of gaps, lots of questions, lots of challenges. But what is it? Why are we all here? Like, what's the main thing? Do we speak in tongues, not speak in tongues? Do we do communion every week, once a month? Are we, are we complementarianism? Do we believe women should be in ministry? We are, by the way, here. There's lots of questions. Is hell real? Is it eternal? So many questions. Every time you read a story, ask a question. Did that happen? How did that happen? How could that happen? What's the basics? 
If someone comes along and asks you a question that you don't have the answer to and you shuttle the basics, that's a different question because the basics of what we believe is what Paul preached. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what we believe. Here's what I believe. Here's what I think you should believe is the fundamental of our faith. It's the thing you hang on to the tightest. He says, now, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news. Let me just say this. Notice he's talking to brothers and sisters. It's his way of saying, hey, church, let's keep talking about the main thing. Let's, new, let's not lose sight of the main thing. Well, what's the main thing? It's the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. He's saying if you were given a worldview of this gospel and it wasn't true, you need to shuttle it anyways. But if the gospel is true, if Jesus did die and did raise from the grave, then you better hang on to this thing because it's the main thing. Stand firm in it. Fight for your faith. Verse 3, he says this. I passed on to you what's the most important. And what had also been passed on to me, Christ died for our sins. Here it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. What Paul is saying is this. At the end of the day, I got lots of questions too. But here's what I know. There's a man named Jesus who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, and he rose from the dead. If you don't believe me, Martha's right down the street. She was there. She saw him. Here's, here's the addresses of some of the apostles. They're still like, go ask them. They were there. He was at a gathering of 500 people. All the, most of these people are still alive. Like, go find them, and you can get firsthand testimony that these people saw Jesus die on a cross, and three days later, he was alive. And he was around for 40 days after that, and then ascended to heaven. And so the basics of this whole thing, while we got lots of questions that don't always make sense, and I don't always understand God, I have questions myself. What hangs me up isn't the questions. What holds me on? is the foundation of my faith in Jesus. That he lived and that he died and he rose again. And I can rest my head in the reality of who he is and what he accomplished for all of us. So I just wanna say, if you're here and you have questions, it's okay. Don't go through deconstruction alone. Invite someone with you in the journey. Put the materials in front of you that's gonna help answer the questions you have. But most of all, it's a faith worth fighting for. It's a value system worth contending for because nobody else came to rescue you like Jesus. And so Father, I pray for every person hearing this message, Lord, all the questions in the room, all the conflicts, some of us are hurt, some of us are angry, but I pray, Lord, you'll bring us back to the main thing. Bring us back to the simplicity of the gospel bring us back to some of the foundations that we need to hang on to. Lord, I pray every person in this room, I pray, God, you'll meet them where they are. Most of all, Lord, I pray where the enemy is whispering and lying and deceiving and working hard to get us to walk away and abandon the most precious gift we've ever been given. I pray specifically for you. If you're fighting, maybe you walked away, that today God will capture your heart again. That while maybe I hurt you or maybe other church people hurt you, 
God loves you with a perfect love, a sacrificial love, and he invites you into a perfect relationship with him. And all you have to do is say yes. If you're here, you've never given your life to Jesus. All you have to do is say yes. So I'm gonna pray a really simple prayer. If you're at any of our campuses, you're watching online, you just wanna say yes to him, yes to the hope he offers, yes to the life he promises, yes to the forgiveness we all need. All you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me. Be my savior. I put all my hope in you. Help me to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. And everybody who greets that, amen.